Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Mike McNair Revolutionary Strategy Series. Today is Friday the 1st of March 2019 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. Today we continue our reading of Revolutionary Strategy, Marxism and the Challenge of Left Unity and grapple with the first chapter, Marxism as a Political Strategy, which lays out the traditional political strategy of Marx and Engels that was refined by Kautsky and Babel. If you'd like to help keep the episodes flowing, you too can become a patron for as little as $5 a month, which works out at about $1 an episode. When we reach 50 patrons, we release an extra Patreon-only podcast every month and fortnightly if we reach 100. So join the gang gang by clicking on that there Patreon button. If you'd like to comment on the show, please do so on the YouTube channel. I try my best to respond to each and every one of them. Also, make sure to like, subscribe and share. And you can also join me on Facebook or Twitter too. Okay, to the discussion. Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Mike McNair Revolutionary Strategy Reading Group. We have a nice wee panel with us here today. Uh, we have from all the way from Sweden, we've got Emmanuel. How's it going, Emmanuel? I'm good. Yeah, we've got no mathematics and no tables in, in this series. So, Emmanuel, you might yeah, like it. I'm totally out of my element. I'm, I'm officially the one with the, what, what do you call it, the... Did you guys have that in in Ireland back in the like 30s or 40s when when someone in class was was behaving Dun- badly they got like a cone dunce cap yeah. dunce cap dunce cap. Yeah, dunce cap yeah 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 I'm the one with the dunce cap today I was I was thinking Emmanuel maybe I could output the the book in binary for you to make it easier <laughs> putting hexadecimal I I feel intuitive for me and my android brain a friend of mine who is my age and was brought up about 10 miles down the road from me when she was in primary school, the teacher actually made her wear a dunce cap. Wow. Shit, you not. Wow. Huh. That's ni- mid-80s Ireland. D- did you wow. know that yeah. they used yeah. dunce caps in the Chinese Revolution? <laughs> or in the, in the Cultural Revolution, I should say. Well, I think I had did see stuff about that. Yeah. Struggle session. Wow. Okay. Derek. All the way from sunny, warm in Utah. How's it going? That's okay. Um, I guess you're proving that negging is how the Irish save civilization, but... I don't even know. What, what is this negging? <laughs> ne- you want to know, man. Let's just, let's just go. <laughs> that would imply I'm trying to chat you all up. Am I right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> Things are right. Uh, I think I must be pretty desperate. Now, move, moving on. Alexa, how's it going? Going all right, Tom. It's a cold fucking day in Connecticut, and I'm not going outside for shit. Let's talk Marxism. Cool. And finally, we have Ian Jabo. Ian, do you say it with a j or a, just a, a zabo? What, what way do you say it? Uh, I'm not entirely sure. I, I personally pronounce it a zabo, but supposedly I've heard it's like a sharp Z, um, if you're going to say it in like correct Hungarian. Yeah, it's Hungarian for the word Taylor. Having a Hungarian name pretty much like cursed me to have my name pronounced incorrectly for my entire life. So it's whatever. I still cringe when I hear people pronounce Lukash incorrectly. It's oh, yeah. not hard. Lukax. Lukax. <laughs> you yeah. mean Luke's? 
That's my favorite Star Trek joke, you know, or Star Wars joke. You know the one. I know what you got for Christmas, Luke. I felt your presence. I mean, you know that joke. <laughs> oh <one>. no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. Today we're going to start. Before we we have a section here called "Before We Move On." This contains some elements from the first uh, introductory chapter, which we didn't really get into, and I think Lexi and well, mm-hmm. probably me too, and some other people think that it's. There are really important points about what McNair thinks are the implications of what happened in the 20th century. Because in the United States, we're having this conversation in the wake of the Marxist Center organization, there's a sort of de facto kind of look. We need to put all of our political differences aside and just see who wants to organize. I'm kind of sympathetic to that. I, I can see where people would want to take that uh, line and just try to cast off all this superstructural, ideological garbage and whatever, and just, you know, focus on the real practical tasks. However, if you are taking McNair as your guide, you cannot entirely do that. And that's because of the causal role that McNair gives to the experience of Stalinism and the fear that contemporary communists are attempting another Russian revolution. Without acknowledging this, I find it hard to organize around McNair's principles, let's say. And not that Marxist center is doing so. They're using center in a a way that's more associated with the scholar Hal Draper. But as we go on with the book, I think it'll be obvious why something called Marxist center is relevant to McNair people. So I selected four quotes. I don't know how deeply we want to dig into each of them. I don't know if we want to do it Kleiman style and just read it out. I read Um, it out. The short explanation of this situation is that the political left is still in the shadow of the bureaucratic, quote, socialist regimes of the 20th century and their fall, or in the case of China and Vietnam, their evolution towards openly capitalist regimes. It is not merely that these regimes were murderously tyrannical. The point is that all of the sacrifices, both of political liberty and of material well-being, which the regimes demanded of those they ruled, have only led back to capitalism. As long as the left appears to be proposing to repeat this disastrous experience, Mm. we can expect mass hostility to liberal capitalism to be expressed mainly in the form of rightism, that is, of nostalgia for the pre-capitalist social order. I think that's a, a great quote. I have great difficulty when I meet uh, a lot of these small groups, you know, when I was in Occupy and I met like first interactions with a lot of the kind of SWP types or, you know, these these groups. And I don't know, like they have, they seem to be obsessed with Lenin and obsessed with the Russian revolution and all of this stuff. And to the, to the, to the average Joe on the street, they consider that whether they're informed or not, they kind of consider that just like, why the hell would you be in favor of that stuff? Look what it led to. And if you're going to be serious politically, you're going to have to deal with that point. Just no way around it. Yeah. And in the context of the United States, there's a thought that goes like this. Because of the history of the Cold War and the way that it stapled anti-communism into American life, therefore, we have to push back against these uh, anti-Stalinist narratives because they've exaggerated things too much. And I think from the perspective of the glorious communist future, when people look back, 
you know, once we're already in communism and they look back at Stalinism, they can say, wow, what a sad attempt to do something good. Until we're in the glorious communist future, I don't see a point in trying to rehabilitate that. Yeah. Also, you know, see Soviet anime leftist memes. It seems to me that most of the lefts, even the left with which like I identify, seems to be like very Soviet apologist in a way that I think is usually I just think it's funny, but like this reminded me why that is probably not a good strategy if we want, you know, people who aren't only on very weird parts of the internet to join our cause. <laughs> I want to uh, introduce a, a Donald. Donald is here. Before we go, I just have to apologize for Donald for being such a troll in our Discord group that uh, he thought I was seriously kicking him off the reading group. Oh, it's fine. You're, uh, you're <laughs> Irish. It's in your blood. <laughs> true. You're goddamn right, right. Just kidding. Just kidding. No Nazbol. No Nazbol. Um, Donald, I was attempting my, be my best. Um, Stalinism is important and pushing back on anti-Stalinism is important kind of position, but I can't really give it in good faith like you can. So... Well, yeah, I mean, we have to make it clear that we don't want Stalinist Russia. Like, I don't think any revolution in the 21st century is going to, like, look like Russia in 1917 and then Stalin. I just think that, like, there's a certain narrative in the U.S. It mirrors too much this kind of Asiatic despotism type narrative. But, I don't know, my thoughts on this are pretty complex because, I don't know, there's things about the Soviet Union that I will defend, but there's things I will pretty harshly critique. In, but in the context of American political strategy, we want a Marxist party to win in America or to at least, you know, come together in the United States or in the American continent, let's say. I think the more relevant thing would be Cuba than if we're trying to, like, deal with like, what would that party's relationship with Cuba be like? Because, you know, they're pretty much, you know, it's a actually existing socialist state, like right off the shore. I, I think that, the, you know, the society that exists in Cuba is a little bit more complex than just, you know, Stalinism. Like, I think they've kind of moved away from that heavy Stalinist direction, unlike North Korea, which has kind of gone the opposite direction. Well, much like the Soviet Union itself, you know, there's a high Stalinist watermark and then there's, you know, the um, Khrushchev period. And from then on, it's kind of a different beast, even if it's still a beast. Yeah, I, was about to say, I would actually say, I don't know that, I know that you can't say that it wasn't Stalinist, but the, the extent of Stalin's influence on Cuba beyond, you know, Khrushchevian missile defense, which is already in the revisionist period, is kind of hard to exactly pinned down as what could because because having studied for example like co-op patterns and stuff like that and like relative freedoms they follow a very different trajectory and it's not that cuba's perfect cuba's done some some stuff i would never do but it's it's still like you don't you don't have an equivalent to like the purges the purges yeah exactly that's what i'm saying i was like we gotta like we should look at like the things that these countries did things we don't like about them and critique them and see why they happened. Great purges. I've been studying them a lot. And it's honestly, the more I study them, the more, the harder it gets for me to kind of explain them in like economic determinist sense, if that makes sense. I was trying to kind of point out a sort of fusion of the views of uh, Trotsky and E.H. Carr, which is that I think that the Soviet Union especially nowadays, North Vietnam and Cuba are defensible as 
progressive in the world historical sense, whereas a place like the USSR and possibly even uh, North Korea, they don't really require that sort of defense that I think would be more necessary for a place that is kind of progressive and require instead a sort of more thorough analysis for understanding exactly what went wrong and why. One thing that I feel about this is that you know, if we're thinking like strategically about how you create a party and what you want your party to sound like, look like, what it wants it to smell like, you cannot have it smelling like Stalinism. You can't let it smell and be situated in a way that feels like an old Stalinist party or a trot party. Just it won't work. It will get absolutely nowhere because people have the, the working people, the normal people have a negative experience of that. You know, we can't deny the massive problems that was that happened with those type of regimes. Like I live in London here. You've got lots of Eastern European people that have moved over since they joined European Union. And, you know, the vast, major, like the vast majority that I have talked to, I don't know the vast majority, but I would say the majority have very negative feel towards communism after coming out of it. Some don't, but a lot of them do. And that's something that we've got to be able to think about and strategize and design our political structures such that we can make a case for how we are different and how we're not going to go that way. And I think that has to be a major element of it. One of the elephants in the room for me in this quote that we're, we seem to have a particular hang up about the USSR and maybe the defense of North Vietnam, which look, I actually have defended <laughs> Vietnam on Tom's show. So obviously I'm not totally uh, against it. I do, however, feel interestingly about the question of China, because this is relevant right now, and it is a state, and there has been a resurgence in people claiming that China is not a capitalist state for a variety of, uh, of reasons. On the far left, on, on the center, and on the right. And that, to me, is actually a bigger issue for trying to deal with a party, because one of the things historically that is not being mentioned, but that the communist parties in, in the United States, in the UK, etc., they got funding from outside states. Um, that was part of their tactical alignment. You know, McNair's point in the first chapter, partly why he uses the first international as a model, is that we don't live in that world. We live in a world closer to uh, geopolitically to like 1880 to 1914 than we do to the Cold War. But a party or mass movement even would have to deal with the actually still existing claim on socialism being made by China. I'm not sure how the people here feel about that. I know that I... I have a hard time actually saying that China is out and out capitalistic. I mean, it, it would be hard to argue, for example, that it has private ownership and most theories of state capitalism fall apart. But it's also, I'm, I'm not going to argue remotely that it's socialism. It doesn't even consistently have socialized medicine. So like... It's just a form of a mixed economy, Derek, isn't it? Yeah, well, but it's, a, it's even weird for that, actually. But yeah. But you, there are Marxists who deny them. There are plenty of Marxists actually deny the idea of a mixed economy as being even possible. I don't know. I, I don't want to get us bogged down in the debate on China, but it does seem like that that's going to be a hang up for a lot of people off the bat. In a way that, say, Cuba, for example, in 
we can get hung up on that too, but Cuba's not. Ultimately, in the scope of Hegelian world history, maybe these states are vindicable, you know what I mean? But um, for the case of working class emancipation, I feel like the gut reaction to, ooh, that was brutal, it's probably more correct than any nuanced defense. The plight of the Uyghurs in China right now, for instance, that's being, uh, it's being documented really well in uh, Shuang, the communizer sort of Chinese journal. I, I think that any future Marxism basically will have to be thought through and organized on the basis of that pit in our stomach that this kind of came out fucked up and we probably shouldn't appeal to it. I think a, a narrative attachment to these regimes makes it difficult to be honest about it. If we take like the, the core of socialism, like that Marx would say, is the workers control the means of production. None of them have that. And that's fundamental. You know, none of them have it. So it's hard to defend anybody that doesn't have that. All right. So I'm going to read another quote. That was from page 10. This is from page 11. Under the Soviet style bureaucratic regimes, there is no objective tendency towards independent self-organization of the working class. Rather, there are episodic explosions. But to the extent that the bureaucracy did not succeed in putting a political cap on these, they tended towards a pro-capitalist development. The strategic line of a worker revolution against a bureaucracy, whether it was called, quote, political revolution, as it was by orthodox Trotskyists, or, quote, social revolution, by state capitalism and bureaucratic collectivism theorists, lacked a material basis. So what's he getting at here, Lexi? Well, first, he's skewering virtually every analysis of the Soviet Union in the 20th century, other than the most pessimistic. The most pessimistic that was done by some of the heterodox Trotskyists. And I think Bordiga, even though he thought it was capitalism, also at least had the sense that the Soviet Union was actually a regime towards capitalism as well, which I that's just undoubtedly true. Well, the extension of those like, oh shit, this is just gonna, you know, get fed into capitalism theories. Virtually every line on the Soviet Union that Marxists tried to take that was at all appealing to the specter of working class social or political revolution is completely wrong because the working class doesn't actually organize in a worker state. They're, they're done. They're like, they, they are actually frozen and locked out in a way that McNair thinks doesn't happen in capitalism. That's a fair point, isn't it? Like there isn't like a dynamic towards being organized, a very repressive existing communist state because they would essentially be under the thumb of the whether it's a kgb or whatever the secret police a lot you know it's a lot more repressive there than it would be to organize here in most i know china has got a lot of organizing but that's certainly not something we ever heard of as a feature of say the soviet union or the eastern bloc apart from solidarity no anything that's evidence for capitalism in china yeah it's actually that's interesting to think about one of the interesting things about this the uh, state capitalist here. I know, Lexi, you seem to said that the, the towards capitalism, that's important because state capitalist theories, they posited a social revolution. And for those who don't speak really arcane <laughs> trot, the difference there is that, you know, a social revolution is like what, what's a good parallel the French revolution? Well, yeah, actually the language the, I think comes out of the French revolution where the social right. revolutionaries wanted to reorganize society. The political revolutionaries just wanted to change regimes. Right. And the political revolution is just a regime change. And so the these debates are interesting. What's also interesting is, is actually McNair name drops the two tendencies he thought were the most right. And what's they're not states capitalist tendencies. 
that's interesting too. I mean, he actually says the, the least wrong were the Sparts and the Marcy, the Neo Marcyites in the UK in specific. Those are deviations of Orthodox Trotskyist positions about deformed worker statism. And what made them correct was that they were most pessimistic, but he even points out they were also wrong. Like nobody called. Not a single trot group called 1988 to 1992. Not one. Because no one thought uh, opposition from a movement towards capitalism and trot world was possible. There's also just like what his actual position is, which he said in lectures, which you can find on, I think, like the Mayo, is that the USSR was neither state capitalist or bureaucratic collectivist, although... He seems to sort of agree with Hillel Tickton's version of bureaucratic collectivism, but he tends to he tends to say that what it really was at the end of the day, because I think it becomes unambiguous by '89, is that it was a long detour to capitalism, and that a lot of these regimes at the end of the day were long detours into capitalism. He's probably driving that also off of uh, the world systems theorists, which he tends to quietly draw quite a lot. That a lot of these were transitions not necessarily to socialism, but to modernity. At the end of the day, Leninism became a different path to modernity itself. I think that's definitely a, a big influence, as well as uh, G.A. Cohen's like theory of history. There's Old Man Wallerstein all over McNair's work, if you can like read through the lines. Yeah, the same with the analytical Marxists. They're all over this. And in the same way, he's not loud about it. He doesn't want to associate himself with it. Moving onwards, Trotskyists of all varieties continue to put forward as positive socialist strategy, a revolution in the image of 1917 in Russia. But as everyone knows, what happened to the Russian revolution was the emergence of the bureaucratic regime, which is now ended or is in the process of ending in capitalism. Trotskyists are therefore required to account for how the bureaucratic regime arose and to offer reasons for supposing that the process would not be duplicated anywhere else, which had a 1917 style revolution from page 12. We've covered this a little bit, but why would anyone want to do that again? I remember people asking me this when I was more Leninist sympathetic, when I was, you know, hovering around a Trotskyist group. I'd be like, yeah, but it didn't work. Be like, yeah, but it almost worked. Yeah, but it didn't. But it, but it didn't, though. <laughs> it, it's, it's the key question. It's the key comment, but it, it didn't work. You know, it's like the man in the street, the simplest logic. And you go, why would you do that again? He's dead, right? Unless you can strategically understand what went wrong and what not to do the next time, it's pointless. You might as well just go drinking. I've actually, it, there's been a, a return to a post hoc logic that 1917 works. We can see the proof in the pudding because 1917 happened. I don't think anyone um, on this podcast, regardless of how they feel about the Soviet Union, whether or not they're defenseless or not, would actually really argue for that. But what we are arguing, with each other, we often make that argument like, well, it worked. And if it worked, then also, for example, quote, the Athenian Empire worked because it's the only society that I can think of that was as short-lived as the Soviet Union. So, you know, that's what we're dealing with. Like, I have one historical parallel. I have to go back 2,400 years-ish for it. Well, I was going to ask what revolution you were thinking of. The transition to the Athenian Empire, because that society lasted for about 70 years. It was not a single revolution. It's, 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 I mean, there was kind of a, it was a political revolution, but 
the transition of like um, citizen democracy, a hyper minoritarian democracy in ancient in an ancient city state. That is a society that lasted the same length as the result of the Russian Revolution, which is not actually I don't even say that to demean, you know, the, the USSR it did. It actually did a whole lot in the in its time period. But it's also oh, it only lasted a human lifetime in the scale of world society. That's there's not a whole lot else that's that short that was also that successful. And has that, and has had world historic importance. Just want to move on, like one moment, because I think we're all kind of agreeing on, like, yeah, you can't make the post hoc argument. But why do you think the temptation to continue to make that is? Um, because that's a question I think about. Because it's a, it's an argument that I've seen since I was 18 years old, and you know, in first in both left book stuff in like 1997. and and then like the sting was super fresh, like <laughs> like you know, like I remember when the wall fell. Uh, so <laughs> I don't think it's any more complicated than something bad that exists. It, it can be better than something good that doesn't. Yeah, you have a material basis to draw on, but I wanted to mention just in relation to like the kind of Trotskyist narratives about the revolution, what a kind of like really core misapprehension that shows up over and over again when it comes to the Trotskyist narratives is that they completely ignore who actually set up the Soviets. It was not the Bolsheviks, it was not Trotsky, it was it was the Mensheviks, and it was the same way in Germany. It was the reformist social democrats. Almost invariably you had massive reformist factions building up uh, trade unions and workers' councils beforehand, which is kind of like a perfect kind of place to center on where it's sort of like you have this mythology, but it's it's predicated on huge misapprehensions about what the basis for that revolution itself was. Indeed. Probably most people who come into contact with the organized left don't think about the issue at this level of analysis, i.e. that the left has failed to account properly for Stalinism. What they see is something much simpler, that the left groups are massively divided. And if they are familiar with the groups or pass through membership of them, that the groups are not really democratic, but either no more democratic than the capitalist parliamentary constitutional regime, or that they are characterized by bureaucratic tyranny just like Stalinism. In reality, the division is, to a considerable extent, the product of bureaucratic centralism, and both are at least in part produced by the failure to account properly for Stalinism. So why does this matter? And this is why it matters. This has something of an impact on our political life that you'd have to be ideologically motivated not to see. We're either just about as bullshit democratic as the United States Congress, or we're even worse. Why should anybody trust us if we're like that? As someone who's experienced grievance procedures less democratic than the American justice system, I know exactly what he's talking about. It's just so obvious to the man on the street that would say they would be interested in something, but what about Stalin? It's just, these are just obvious truths that for me, while people may talk about them on the left, people who may talk the talk, but when you actually get into actually dealing with them and dealing in their organizations, they don't act like that in the slightest. That's my experience of any of these left wing oh, yeah. groups. And it's my experience of friends of mine who got into, say, the Irish version of SWP. I didn't know he was in it and he tried it and he said, you know, they were just so intense and they were weird. And he left after a while because they wrecked his head. 
I think that's probably par for the course for the vast majority of people who pass through all these kind of left groups. There's something unspoken actually about that too that I kind of want to talk about because there's a, a way with left groups are democratic in the way they set things up, but the five or six people who set it up and then as people accrue in the organization, it becomes much harder to democratically do anything. So you have a tyranny of those who are there first. And I don't really know how to fix that exactly. I mean, that's not like that doesn't happen in states too. But it, it's just, it's an interesting issue. There's also a tendency, and the McNair doesn't talk about this. This is actually some, some nuts and bolts stuff I wish got brought up in this book. But there's also a tendency in these, in these uh, pro-democratic groups to believe in stuff like um, no secret ballots and stuff like that. So that you can, quote, own the responsibility of your voting, unquote. Which is a way to have soft power pressure applied to people to stay mm-hmm. in line. And anyone who studies psychology knows this, and that's why secret ballot is used so much. But th- it is very popular for leftists to argue that secret ballot is uh, tyrannical for some reason. Privacy is bourgeois, Derek. A lot of these groups, um, in fact, I would say almost all of them, Trot, Mao, actually, weirdly, but some of the Maoist groups are actually better <laughs> about this stuff. Um, <laughs> I know it's sad, but it's true. They all have these constitutions that are largely pulled from the Bolsheviks in 1921. They use these, like, no secret ballots, all public voting, factionalism's banned, you vote slate for representatives, not individuals, et cetera, and so forth. And they tend to produce the same things over and over and over again, which is these these little sectarian movements. I so I do think in some sense, like at least on a formal structural level, like maybe you can't pull a whole lot from the Bolshevik model. I mean, honestly, maybe earlier bourgeois models are better. I don't know, Derek, if you remember on KMO's show, he used to have this magic guy on who was like one of these collapse guys on called John Michael Greer. Do you remember him? Yes, I, I'm. I'm actually kind of a fan of John Michael Greer, but he's kind of a weird collapsarian druid, literally a druid, <laughs> a collapsarian druid. It sounds like a weird religion, but he, but he was like saying at the time when Occupy came up, and he talks a lot of rubbish and he talks some sense too. But he he said um, it was obviously a very crappy organizational structure. He was saying, you know, when he was involved in stuff in the sixties. You could have like straight down the line, two thirds majority on certain things that were contentious. And he just laid out some simple rule and organize them. And, you know, he was absolutely spot on, dead right. I think that when you see all of those things you're talking about there, Derek, when people are talking about, you know, these having a slate and having, you know, uh, no secret ballots. I think when people are designing these, they know exactly what they will lead to. And most important for these people who set up a small sect what they really want is to remain in control the idea that you can start a group and then it'll grow to like a hundred thousand members and you and your four mates will still be the leading people in it idiotic way to do it the the sign that you are growing should be a sign of positivity and that you'll attract good people into it but i don't think these organizations are ever set up like that they're set up to maintain high control you know and usually jobs for the bureaucratic boys or jobs for the 
for the state, you know, intellectual, whether you're Alex Kalinikos or somebody from the SWP or, you know, pick your choice. The structure of how we organize, the structure of how you set up these groups is key and crucial to growth and success. And that's one of the reasons why DSA took off is because of its structure, how structureless it was for like control and stuff, <laughs> you know, and that's one of the reasons for its growth. Why did the DSA grow above all these other ones? Any of these ones could have taken off, but it seems obvious to me it's a structural one. It's mainly because Bernie Sanders used the word democratic socialism. There was that. And because if you think democratic socialism and you want an org that's democratic socialism, you're probably not hostile to the Democratic Party, right? And Democratic Socialists of America basically only exists because of its, its right socialist strategy that we'll, we'll get into next week. Are we being fair to the DSA for saying that? It's easy just to say, mm -hmm. oh, because Bernie said it. But like, what about all this, this vast amount of young people who have like read Chomsky and come to stuff over the internet that would have come to the organization from not just Bernie in the... Am I, am I wrong? Obviously, I'm not living in America, but I would be very surprised if everybody just heard Bernie saying democratic socialism went in. I'd be very surprised. I don't think you are totally wrong, Tom, but I would say like... Full disclosure, some people in, in this group, although not me, have been in the DSA. Um, the structure mm -hmm. of the DSA is way more complicated and more problematic than I think you realize. It is great for growth, but it is terrible to do anything. Granted, yeah. granted, that's not the argument, though. Just talking about growth. and We're talking about why these groups are like that. This, I, What I mean by that, though, that's tied to the right, the right Marxist nature of it because it can't do anything on its own other than grow which is great it can grow and and you're right how it grows is like i mean it has bylaws that are actually it's in some ways somewhat strict they're just only selectively if ever invoked it its larger issue is that what it what it can do locally is the same thing what an, uh, that any i mean frankly any anarchist group can do and what it can do nationally is really only only effective is is working an adjunct to another party which okay, that's fine. That's that that's fine. We need to understand the strength. The strength is there's no strong ideological litmus test to joining. It also though it uh, I I I think you know it, there are other there are hard geopolitical limits to that. And I also think that we have to remember that while it's mass fifty five thousand, while way better than anything that has existed in the U.S. except for the SDS, the Students for a Democratic Society, which was not an explicitly Marxist organization for the left, it's still on the scale of, of the U.S. pretty tiny. The DSA's membership is kind of the equivalent of, um, have you seen those muscle builders who inject saline into, into their arms? Yeah, it's kind of like that. All you have to do is pay $20 on their website. I'm sorry, 50,000 members... Is, is kind of like the biggest overstatement on the planet. And the Green Party in the U.S. also has 300,000 members on paper. So I'm sorry, I can't usually believe those numbers. It is like being um, in the LDS church. It's almost impossible to get yourself removed from the rolls, too. So it, that takes no account of bone out people who aren't in an active chapter. I think people who've even been purged are still technically on the rolls. So it doesn't. it's hard to know how meaningful any of that is. Yeah, it was when I was in it, um, maybe six or seven years ago, and I was still in it like way longer than I stopped. Like I stopped paying dues and everything, and I was definitely in the loop for longer than I probably should have been. 
Fair enough. But let's say, for example, compare that to, say, the CPGB in Britain. No, no, no. There's no comparison. Look, no comparison. Like, if you, yeah, but if you think about their structure, the CPGB, they have your invite only, I think, and they're oh, trying right, to get right. they're trying to get people from other sects. What is the logic of considering Mike Minear comes out of it? It's just so bizarre that this book is written by him compared yeah, to that, like organization that he's in. We've mentioned before, but Lexi and I were both in a party that adopted the CPGB's constitution and just vaguely like changed a couple of things. We had the same problem. It was hard to become a member. What membership entitled you to was weird. It, it, the, the internal democracy structure was quite was there. It existed, but it was quite strange. Um, Paper members versus real members were a real problem. That's fascinating to me. But I, th I, I think, you know, what McNair would say is the CPGB isn't a party. It's what it really is, is a... The description he uses is ginger group. What does that mean? I don't know. It's a McNairism. What did he call us? Sorry, say a again. Ginger group? I, I, I just actually did look it up. It is a formal or informal group within an organization that seeks to influence direction and activity of said group. It comes from the phrase ginger up. It's basically a caucus. Or so it's a caucus within what, labor? Originally, the CPGB... PCC. PCC? All right. Provisional Central Committee. Yeah, that was the ginger group within the CPGB, but I think they pretty much got booted out of the CPGB because it was an, uh, an ML organization. There, there's a history there, so what it was attached to has changed over time. The original um, you know, Communist Party of Great Britain doesn't exist anymore. You just two sectarian, one anyway, ginger group on. and one sectarian split. Anyway, move on. Let's talk about this. We made uh, it to chapter one, everybody. Congratulations. chapter one. Let's start with the very first initial point, which I think is an important one. This first paragraph, which seems to be lost on most Marxists, I think, is the essence of revolutionary strategy is this long-term character. It is the frame within which we think about how to achieve our goals over the course of a series of activities or struggles, each of which has its own tactics. We, we talked a little bit about this last week, but it's, it's important to remember that that long-term character means it isn't just a tactical, and it definitely isn't an ideological orientation. You have a strategic goal, which means we want to achieve this. I mean, which I guess the, the strategic goal is also an ideological goal, but it isn't merely a question of immediate tactics or like winning the next election or getting into parliament or any of that. The question is like, A, how do you build a mass movement to do X? And B, how do you actually do X? And C, what happens after you do X? Those are all part of your, of, of your strategic orientation. There's also some stuff in here about how we are basically in the same period, essentially, as they were in the 1860s, 1870s, when they set up the first international. It's a, it's a bit of a simplification. I, all, all I want to say is that we're in a period more like that than the classical like Marxist 1917 period, you know, through the Soviet Union's collapse. That's all. I, I don't know about you guys, but I'm wearing a, a whalebone dress <laughs> as we're speaking. <laughs> and I'm lighting, running my, my PC here on paraffin, whale and whale oil. <laughs> no, I, I know you're, you're not saying that. I know, I know you're not saying it's exactly like it, but there are people that on that basis, you know, will extrapolate maybe a lot more than you probably can. This paragraph here, he, he talks about 18 to 21 
saw the defeat of the concept of Bolshevism. It's quite a statement for a Leninist to say. Yeah, this is something I, I believe, so go ahead. All right, so 18 to 21 saw the defeat of the historical strategic concept of Bolshevism, meaning the, the, the democratic dictatorship of the proletariat and peasantry, as well as those of Trotsky, workers' government as supported by the poor peasantry, and Luxembourg, workers' movement set free by revolutionary crisis would solve its own problems. The concrete form of defeat was the Russian that Russia remained isolated. And but this has been my stance, and it's even somewhat like Chomsky actually even holds this stance, interestingly, although for different reasons, reasons I don't think are as valid, that Bolshevism could not get out of Russia. It was not an effective strategy in Germany for whatever reason. And because of that, it effectively became a histor it became a historical cul-de-sac. I remember reading a bunch of essays because I, I had this joke where I used to put like a, a list of random years in the 20th century up. They weren't random, but and I would say which year you pick as the as the betrayal of the revolution tells me what tendency you are. Like many left communists do, actually, and, and McNair is not a left communist, do not be confused, but he shares this similarity with a lot of them. He he puts 1918 as the moment, and he doesn't put it on Lenin, he puts it on the failure of Germany and also, you know, of, of basically the Russian revolution to be properly speaking a world revolution. It's just the fact that the, the revolution wasn't supposed to be a national revolution. Although to be also fair, Russia wasn't, isn't a nation, it's an empire, but whatever. Okay. The next part, the next paragraph, he goes on to say something that is kind of the core of this book. What happened next was to render concrete the 1850s warnings of Marx and Engels against the premature seizure of power in Germany, which formed the basis of Kautsky's caution in the 1890s and 1900s. By choosing to represent the peasantry and other petty proprietors, especially state bureaucrats, the Workers' Party disabled itself from representing the working class, but instead became a sort of collective Bonaparte. This is... A key point, if we're thinking about setting up and thinking long-term strategy, it's like if you look at, say, someone like Luxembourg with the Spartacus League, what percentage of the vote did they have at the time? Were they five or six percent around there? It was it was small. Yeah, and also like they weren't. To be fair, I, I was reading uh, an introduction to the Russian Revolution. I think it was one of one by Oxford, and it went down into like what group made up. The majority of the people and like with the spartacus league most of its membership were uh, unemployed and catholic i don't know why that's important but it, it just indicated that that it had a a micro niche character even in its demographic um appeal which is kind of interesting to think about i, I may be over relying on you know quote bourgeois sociology here but it i haven't actually got a good explanation for why that was the case so yeah but it was small the SP day was huge, but was already tending right. So maybe we should zoom in on what he means by collective Bonaparte. There is a tendency in Trotskyism, and I think it is actually based off of uh, the 18th Brumaire, like one of Marx's yeah. works. It's uh, it goes back to classical Marxism, not just right. Trotsky. Yeah, yeah. Well, it goes back to Marx. This concept of uh, Bonapartism that um, usually the state is basically representing the interests of the bourgeois class, but every so often in a historical aporia where there's a sort of like, you know, stalemate of sorts, the state can develop more relative autonomy than is normal and start pursuing its own interests, you might say. 
it might be said the interests of a certain strata or caste if you want to avoid making uh, bureaucrats a class. That's what he's going with by, by saying, by choosing to represent the peasantry and other petty proprietors, especially state bureaucrats, the Workers' Party disabled itself from representing the working class. So let's That's what see, he means. Why, why isn't uh, McNair an autonomous then? Because, but I actually, why is he I, not an autonomous? Yeah, because like that, that actually is that reads like an autonomous point. I, it just occurred to me reading yeah. this again yesterday. Like that's that's actually a pretty interesting point because it's not just that it's not just that the Bonapartism. By the way, we need to be we need to expand on that. Isn't just sure, sure. It, that it represents a bureaucratic class. It represents a coalition of small classes of which the a bureaucratic class is dominant. You know, the classic uh, and Marx is the lump and proles and parts of the peasantry and parts of the bureaucracy. And other times it's been other it's been other groups. So he's saying by representing the peasantry, then that's specific to Russian Bolshevism. You petty proprietors, particularly state bureaucrats. Notice he doesn't even say uh, he doesn't say petite bourgeois because they're not even properly yeah. speaking bourgeois yet. Um, it's right. Like a, petty proprietors is like a, is a an abstraction from petty bourgeois, which I actually like. They have small property. It's not about being bourgeois. You know, they, they, they might employ nobody. Right. To be tav like somebody opened a baker, or a tavern owner or something small. Are we, or, well, saying? yeah. Or also street, street like, vendor. Yes. Vegetable that, seller. Well, that's, that's true. Uh, petty bourgeois, but yes, he means them, but he also means uh large land honing peasants a lot of us in, in this conversation <laughs> um i you well, know. yeah like uh intellectual like rentier rentiers maybe like <laughs> could be a contemporary form well, of weird abstract petty proprietor well like in russia for example the intellectual was literally an employee was like a patronized class by the aristocracy like it was a literal it was a separate deal and that was part of right. that right so it applies like, there even more than it does now in a way right did, did you say a patreon class mm -hmm. oh, i like it i like it <laughs> <laughs> it does describe our uh, relationship to the means of <laughs> i hate to read the entire book but there's just a lot of really good chapters right around here on this stuff it's very dense and you know yeah really good it's... good pickings go for it okay uh the Bolshevik leaders could see and feel it happening to themselves, and in 1919-23, the common turn flailed around with a succession of short-lived concepts, each of which would, it would hope, break the isolation of the revolution. These strategic concepts are not simply rendered obsolete by the collapse of the USSR in 1991. The fate of other socialist countries also proves them to be a strategic blind alley. Okay, so he's making that broader point that it's not just Russia, it's all of the others have essentially fell into the same basic problem. This doesn't work. <laughs> um, yeah. it, this, this more generally in its Russian form, but also in its exported form. So it didn't work where it started and then where it was exported, it also did not work. So it fail, failed in Russia, failed in China, failed in Vietnam, failed in Cuba, right. failed in Eastern Europe, failed right. in Central Asia. It's failed everywhere. Nowhere did it get towards what would what you would think of the people who ran those revolutions wanted them to turn out like it goes back to the sort of world systems point which is that these were not socialistic triumphs they are simply alternative passages into modernity exactly what you're saying about the world systems thing is accentuated in a point of his called historical blind alleys in which he makes analogs essentially for 
the different sorts of society, like ancient society and, you know, feudal society, etc. Et you know, he makes like rough parallels where in one, the predominance of one mode of production, a little island, an experiment will pop up and then fade away. And then later on, it will be shown that that is actually an expression of a broader dynamic that would soon become the dominant mode of production. He uses the Venetian Republic as an example of the, a proto-capitalist republic. But, but at its time, a historical blind alley, because it doesn't actually blossom from there. And so I guess that's how he ultimately sees Leninism or Stalinism, is that it's a, I, I think you could fairly say Leninism, really, that, that Leninism, it, it just is one of these historical blind alleys. From, from the glorious socialist future, future, we'll see it as continuous in a sort of sense, but in, in the practical sense, it will not literally be a continuous struggle. Okay, Lexi, why don't you read out this next paragraph? I think this sums let's, it up quite well. Let's do it. When you are radically lost, it becomes necessary to retrace your steps. In the present case, this means retracing our steps to the strategic debates of the early workers' movement and the Second International, which defined the strategic choices available to socialists in the early 20th century, and in this sense, led to the blind alley of 1918 through 91. There's often a question nowadays, you know, why do we study any of this? What's the point? Some of the newer Marxists, the communizers, would go as far to say that there's nothing to be learned from the 20th century, nothing to be learned from their failures because we couldn't repeat them if we wanted to. But all <laughs> millennial American Marxists, for the most part, I mean, maybe there's a, a few diff different, you know, most of us aren't growing up as red diaper babies and inheriting this tradition. We've seen the rational progressive left turn into frothing conspiracy theorists, you know? We've we've seen the breakdown of political legitimacy. There's a lot of reasons that people would turn towards history and towards theory to understand. And I don't think you can really honestly do that much theory without history. You can do a, a good empirical read, you know, you can um, use some of the tools of contemporary like analysis to you know draw some suggested interpretations that are intuitively plausible but i don't really think without appealing to the broader tendencies of history even if we are in a very different time period uh, that you can really make sense of any of this also you this is literally why i'm a history major <laughs> this right. is this is the book this is the paragraph that made me become a history major i'm not even joking oh wow oh well, I think it's an it's an excellently succinct point, isn't it? And one thing I'd like to say about it is is the fear that when somebody gets into trying to look at the history and trying to un my feeling is that an awful lot of times people end up kind of nearly becoming smitten with that time, and that we should learn from that time, but we should try everything in our power to move beyond it. I just feel with an awful lot of contemporary Marxists, there is this kind of longing for 1917 when we should be critical and we should always be thinking critically of it. And I think that this paragraph here puts it so well what we should be using history for. We don't want to kind of fall into uh, history buffdom or this longing for the past, like for people who want to go hunting wild boar. There's always, there is always an element of that. 
if we're gonna be antiquarians, I'd rather us be antiquarians about like hunting wild boar and you know wearing weird Bronze Age costumes or something than than just uh, like it seems like if you're gonna pick a weird myth, you could pick a better one. Like, <laughs> I, I want to be running around my garden naked with a with a boar's antlers and its head hollowed out on top of mine. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah, I think like the there point. Why you actually analyze history it, in the way that that McNair is calling for is not is never to kind of recapitulate these arguments or try to try to get lost in that history, but sort of I think in a very broad way, kind of pull out exactly what did what did someone do right, what did someone do wrong when it comes to something like analyzing, especially because he always points to the Second International. I I personally do as well. The kind of the thing that you learn isn't, you know, the very particular aspects of the Second International that they did right. But what you can learn are things that we actually still are kind of are kind of still rediscovering. I think actually a really good example when it comes to the Second International that we're kind of more recently rediscovering in terms of sociology is is in uh, the theoretical framework called uh, social reproduction theory where they're kind of focusing on looking at organization at the site of social reproduction. And as an historian, you look, you can look back at the Second International, especially the German SPD, and you can find that they were, that they were absolutely involved in organization at, the site of, at sites of social reproduction. They were organizing in the household, in the everyday life, and so on and so forth. That, that, I think, is kind of like the direction that McNair is also trying to point towards. And you find totally different ways of understanding class in these kind of classical Marxist parties, right? Later on, we're going to talk about how their understanding of class was radically different, how it wasn't just people at the point of production, but it was a definition of everyone dependent on the wage fund, which is usually the definition I uh, personally use. We have a, a comment. Uh, the question communists today are faced with is this, which LARP is the best one? So that kind of uh, calls back to the historical uh, reenactment that we were talking about. But uh, Ian, to further your pivot, yeah, his um, definition of class is the expanded form that I think is properly Marxian that has to do more with the negative sense of expropriation than the positive sense of the, the power you can potentially get from exploitation. By the way, if any LARP is is the best, it's dressing up in 19th century suits and then wandering around whatever city you're in and then just taking piles of notes in the way that Ingalls did. Why does no one LARP that, you know? Why does nobody LARP British Library marks? I do. I That's what I'm I do. doing right now with my life. I, I, just, I, I just sit around and read all day when I'm not at work. Well, I mean, I do too, but I mean, I'm not at the British Library, man. You know, we could well, do better. I don't. I don't live in a town with a good library. I actually kind of wrote an article about the first, second, and third internationals for Cosmonaut and kind of trying to draw the lessons from each international, and then kind of use those to synthesize a, a more what would I call a holistic revolutionary strategy. It's kind of you know using a lot of McNair's ideas. So I guess I could, was just ripping off McNair, but um, I I think that. The problem, what McNair is getting at here is that we, we can't just dismiss the Second International. Like what a lot of Leninist groups do, you know, Trotskyist, Maoist, Stalinist, either all three brands or whatever. Like they, they think about the Third International 
was basically the, the solution to the problem of the workers' movement. Essentially, everything that we knew from the, the second international is no, long, it no longer applies. And I think that we got to get out of that style of thinking. We need to be willing to critique the third international, but we also need to be willing to, to learn positive things from the second international. Because plenty of people are willing to critique negatively the second international, but they're not willing to draw positive lessons from it. Draw positive lessons from the common turn, but they're not willing to, you know, critique it until like third period or say. Donald, can you give a, because a lot of people will be listening to this, will be going second international, third international. I don't have a goddamn clue what they're talking about. Do you want to give a very quick rundown of, say, one, two and three? Okay, so... The first international was basically a federation of different workers' organizations, and it was multi-tendency in the truest sense. You had, like, you know, Lasallian state socialists. You had the Bakuninist, the anarchist. Even you had Marx, who I guess you could say was kind of in the middle of the two. Essentially, the idea of the international was to act as a coordinating body for the working class, basically unite all the different tendencies of the working class movement into a common body of coordination but what happened was like people realized oh shit there's serious political differences here for example marx and Engels were insistent that you know they run in elections and engage in political struggles whereas the bakunist wing the anarchists who would split were basically no that's you know conceding to the state that's not real socialism and only spon- you need spontaneous uprisings and support those. Bakunin wrote his famous like a uh, statism and anarchy where he basically says both Marx and LaSalle are statists and the true socialism is anti-state. And that was as much a um, split over strategic and tactical differences over ideology, because like I said, Marx thought it was very important to participate in mass politics. So the second international kind of picks up from the first international, but it's a little bit, it's more centralized than people realize. And there's more ideological homogeneity. For example, Kotsky kicks out the anarchists in the second international. There's a, basically a, a unified, there's more of a unified strategy, even though there's just agreements. And so the second international's biggest party was a uh, German SPD, which is really the focus of McNair's polemics here. And essentially, they were anti-imperialist in word. In the Stuttgart Congress of 1907, they all voted to reject colonialism and imperialism. But what they didn't reject was national defense. And so when World War I came around, the idea was that we can support this war because it's a war of national defense against czarism. And so this splits the social democratic movement. And those who split from the social democratic movement on the anti-war side would eventually regroup around the Bolshevik Revolution as the Third International. And the Third International was formed by splitting parties from the Second International in most of the European parties. In third world countries, they, were, they actually built a lot of these parties from the ground up. Basically, the Third International kind of had this idea that the collapse of capitalism was coming that it was, you know, the, the final hour of capitalism and we just needed to kind of draw all the workers into battalions and just go on the offensive and just finish off global capitalism. But it turned out that it wasn't that simple, that 
the second international strategy of building a party and building mass support was still actually important. And the third yeah, international yeah. Would, would eventually like be disbanded by Stalin because he eventually uh, he didn't give a shit about world revolution at a certain point because he was the nationalist piece of shit. Okay, now that's really good because uh, I think a lot of people, myself included, I don't have a great knowledge of of the internationals and the difference to them. Will we pick this up next week? We didn't even get like two pages done of the chapter. That <laughs> no, sounds new, good, a new, Tom. That's a new low. I know it's a new low, but we did rehash. <laughs> we, we did rehash the first episode. I think we'll just wrap it up. Is there anything that we have discussed that people want to get back in on before we quit for the evening? I'll just say that it is kind of funny, and I totally understand why we're only ended up going through one page. And it's that even though this book is a very easy read, it's kind of like there's an there's an easy read on top of it, but directly below it is a is a sea of information that you have to sift through. I mean, just based on what Donald explained, it's like you have to you have to already know all of these different internationals. You mu- and you also have to know how the fourth international understands the prior three internationals to fully kind of understand this book. It's it's an easy book to read, but a hard book to fully kind of grasp, I suppose. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'd say the thing about McNair is that what he does is he does give you enough historical background where, you know, you can make his points. You've got to kind of research this on their own. Like when I met McNair, I asked him, like, what's what is a good book on the Second International? And he recommended me this biography of August Bebel called um, August Bebel, um, God, or his shadow emperor of the German workers. And it was written by this right winger, but it was like just full of all this information about, you know, the early social democratic party and what their politics were like and what kind of debates they had. And, you know, it was obviously of course, like the author was always like, you know, attacking Babel for his utopian socialist uh, tendencies or whatever. But point is that there's, there's a lot of history behind all of this and, you can always dig deeper and deeper and deeper in that. But I think that McNair does do a good job at portraying it in a in an honest way. Because he's a the man is a gold mine of historical knowledge. The only other writings I'd read on on a lot of this stuff before McNair was either right wing writing, some of which are actually remarkably honest, or Trotskyist writings, also which can be really good if they're not talking about their own party this this book gave me a way to synthesize all these things in a way that wasn't as abstract as i don't know reading end notes volumes one through four or something there's not just the historical subtext of this lexi and ian have both brought up there are theoretical subtexts uh, you know the debates between the analytical marxists the political marxists and world systems theory is kind of mcnair kind of synthesizes all of them and and not in a, and not in a cheap rip off way, but in a way that like if you understand them or know them, what he's speaking to makes sense. But if you don't know them, you can still get what he's saying, and that's hard to do. Like this is a pretty good intro level book, unlike most things that claim to be an intro level book. That's all I gotta say. Yeah, I was gonna say basically before I read this book, everything I had read on the Second International was basically Trotskyist, like bashing it and saying, oh, they were just reformists in practice and revolutionary in talk sometimes. And But if you actually study the history more in depth, you realize, well, these people really did believe in revolution. And Kotsky really did like want to overthrow the state and you know bring about a world socialist republic. And Babel was actually feared by the bourgeoisie. 
and these people weren't just timid reformists, but there's this tendency to think that they were because they ran in elections and kind of built up an alternative culture. And I think the reason why the Second International is so important is because it shows us a way to actually build up the forces of the proletariat patiently over time. Where the Third International, you don't really, there's not really uh, much to learn on that. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, the order of the Pharaonic Chesters, and the Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Thanks for listening, and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. <laughs>